Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to today's virtual meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Maha Kalaji and I'm joining you today for this program from Luxembourg. I'll be your moderator for today's program, The Impact of COVID-19 on Refugees. Tonight's program and the club's new virtual efforts are generously supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative in collaboration with local funders and donors. We're grateful for their support and hope others will follow their example to support the club during these uncertain times. We invite everyone to visit us online at www.commonwealthclub.org. And this program will be available soon on YouTube. A reminder to please send your questions for the question and answer period to chat. Our panelists today are Dr. Niveen Riscalla, Research Associate at the Center for Middle East Studies at UC Berkeley, and Amanda Lane, the Executive Director of the Collateral Repair Project, which is based in Jordan. We'll begin with Amanda Lane. Amanda is a seasoned international development professional with extensive experience in international community development, refugee relief, and community and for the nonprofit sector in the Middle East, the US and Africa. Thanks to her expertise in international development program evaluation and design, she is called upon by governmental and non-governmental organizations to evaluate their ongoing programs. She headed the British Council Jordan's governance and youth programs, designing and managing projects around the country that emphasized community engagement human rights, and sustainability. Before coming to Jordan, Amanda consulted for nonprofit boards of directors in Seattle, made a number of short documentaries and promotional films for nonprofits, and served on the board of directors of the Arab Center of Washington. She also served in the Peace Corps in the Cameroon between 1993 and 1995. At Collateral Repair Project, Amanda oversees an operation that provides emergency assistance and community building services for urban refugees. She heads the organization's fundraising efforts and is responsible for program planning, partner relations and communications. The organization caters for Syrian, Iraqi, Kurdish and other refugees and victims of foreign conflict. Amanda also featured in UNUM, which is a magazine that highlights and showcases the stories of diverse women across the globe to elevate and inspire others. So without any further ado, I'd like you to welcome Amanda Lane, who is joining us from Amman, Jordan. Good evening, Amanda. The platform is yours. Thank you, Maher. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, really happy to be speaking to everyone today. I'm going to share my screen. And it looks like it's working. All right, um, so I'm going to talk about uh, refugees in Jordan and uh, how COVID-19 has impacted uh, refugees in Jordan. Um, I want to start by giving an overview about uh, what the situation is for refugees in Jordan in general, um, the numbers, um, just to give you kind of an overview. 
Uh, in Jordan, one in every 10 people is a refugee. And as you'll see, we have over 750,000 people who, who are refugees currently living in Jordan. Among them, um, the largest number by far are Syrians. Um, and then we have a very sizable population of Iraqis, as well as a number of what we call minority refugees. Um, and among those refugees, Yemenis uh, for the past few years have been the fastest growing refugee population in Jordan. The majority of refugees living in Jordan are living in urban areas. And here where I work uh, with the Collateral Repair Project, over 30% of Syrian refugees are here in Amman, but the vast majority of other refugee nationalities are here in the city um, as well. And refugees in general have severe obstacles in, in receiving any type of uh, humanitarian aid. And in large part, this is due to the fact that the Syrian refugee crisis has, is now entering its 10th year. So, a lot of funding came in in the first years of the Syrian refugee crisis, but as you know, uh, Syrian refugee uh, stories are not nearly as much in the news as they used to be. Um, similar uh, for funding and donors, um, a lot less funding, yet the struggles and the difficulties that refugees have uh, still remains. So, a uh, little bit of information about the struggles that refugees have had even prior to, to COVID um, arriving here in Jordan. Um, a lot of their basic needs struggles and the ability to take care of their basic needs really relies on the ability or their inability to work legally. Legal work um, is only partially available to Syrian refugees and completely unavailable for other refugee groups. So uh, it's very difficult um, for people to bring in the kinds of income that they need to bring in to, to make ends meet. Um, you know, uh, even if they are able to work, it's illegal and exploitation is, is quite common. Prior to COVID, 70 to over 80% of refugees in Jordan were classified as either food insecure or vulnerable to food insecurity. So already um, those struggles were quite great and the difficulty of, of people to put food on their tables um, was, was very real. Um, added to that, a number of, or, or many, many families, refugee families, have members who have chronic illnesses or even serious health issues. So, you know, things like diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, depression, those are issues that are rampant in the community and even for, for conditions like those, as well as even more serious conditions. It's very difficult for people to be able to afford the medications they need or sometimes even uh, surgeries or, or more uh, involved health treatment. Another issue that is a huge stressor for families is the fact that many of them have crippling debt. Um, most families in our community uh, are way behind um, in paying rent. They have borrowed um, and they have debt to the extent that, you know, it's just a major stressor for them. Um, to the extent that it's more than or equal to how much they might be able to bring in annually. As I mentioned, refugees in Jordan largely are living in urban areas. They're living in apartments. And as we're now entering the cold and wet winter season, this is the time of year when we have a lot of illness because 
the buildings are not heated. Um, it's very difficult for people to keep warm. There's a lot of mold. It's not uncommon to walk into a family's kitchen and their rooftop is corrugated metal, for example. So, so really, really dilapidated living conditions um, that also really affect health as well. Public education, while it's accessible, um, there are a number, number of issues with public education, and, and this is speaking even pre-COVID. Um, Pre-COVID, you know, it's not uncommon for refugee families to have more than one or two kids, and the fact that they needed to purchase uniforms or books for, that, for their children is often a deterrent, and, and families cannot afford to do that when they have to prioritize their food or, or rent. So... So many daily stressors, so many issues that, that you know, are just part of a daily stressful life for refugees, along with the fact that so many refugees have come fleeing trauma. So PTSD is very, very common. And those two things added together make it very difficult for, for people to be able to make sometimes safe decisions. Um, you know, looking at issues that, that are not uncommon in the community, um, things like family violence, which we know worldwide has, has had an uptick with, with lockdowns. Um, you know, family violence, uh, sending a child maybe to beg on the street, or maybe even uh, sending a daughter um, off for early marriage just because of the inability to take care, for people to take care of their families. I would be remiss if I didn't mention at least one of the many, many hundreds of families that we encounter who are just struggling and have been struggling prior to COVID and really their issues have been exacerbated uh, now that, that COVID has hit. Um, this is a family from Iraq and the man on the right who's holding up the, the medicine box, his name is Kamal. Um, they're a family from Iraq who arrived in Jordan three years ago and um, as you'll see, their living conditions are, are pretty basic. Their house is a little, their apartment's a little bit better than most, but they really don't have much furniture at all. Two of their children have really debilitating epilepsy and the medication that they need for their children is just completely out of reach in terms of what they're able to afford. Um, luckily, we're able to help and, and get the medication donated and taken care of for them. We also help them with, with rent. Um, but, you know, Kamal talks about his inability to find work, that his time is spent, you know, taking care of his kids and really, really worrying because they're of their lack of income. And this is very, very common, um, you know, that people just really have no idea how they're going to put food on their tables. Um, we are... Also as an organization, and it's very common here in Jordan that, that because funding has been, has been going away, families like Kamaus are uh, you know, in danger of losing their monthly support from us. So that's just one of many, many families uh, who are in situations um, relatively similar. So um, ever since COVID hit, we have been reaching out to our community to see what their biggest current worries are. And the top two um, since April have been rent and food. Um, early on in April and May, food was the top, the top worry that families were having. But since then, most families have really fallen behind in paying rent. And so that really, uh, you know, makes a lot of stress for families. I mean, it's at the top of their minds. Um, we've heard many families telling us that their landlord comes and knocks on their door every day and, you know, the kind of stress that that, that, that brings. Um, 
know, we can only imagine. Um, contacting or contracting COVID um, pops in at number three, which probably is not a surprise to any of us. And then things like securing medication, milk and formula for, for their babies and kids, which is quite expensive, as well as paying for, for their cell phones and internet connectivity. And um, I mentioned, I think I mentioned that, that schools have moved online in the past, I think for maybe, well, since, since kind of the end of, of the last school year and, and early on in the school year, things have moved online. And this has become a real, real issue because families don't have laptops at home. They don't have computers at home. They may have one cell phone that they're using and multiple kids and not be able to afford internet. Um, you know, because they have to focus on dealing with food or medication. So, so that has become a real issue as a result of COVID. Um, this is just an array of issues that have, have really been exacerbated um, because of COVID. Um, you know, food security, um, food insecurity has really, really increased because folks who, you know, were working as day laborers or having sporadic work no longer have that work. Um, so food insecurity has definitely raised. Um, healthcare continues to be an issue. And um, in one of our recent um, outreach assessments, we have been very concerned in hearing from 45% of non-Syrian refugee families in our community who have chronic health conditions and, and are unable to um, pay for the medication that they need. Um, education there on the bottom left, you'll see, I've mentioned it's moved online. You know, like everywhere, it's a huge challenge with a bunch of kids at home, um, but also that kids can't access education because they don't have internet. Um, cash assistance has continued to be on the wane um, due to donors kind of moving away from assisting refugees in the Middle East. Um, and this is particularly difficult because of, you know, the, the increased uh, difficulty for people to bring in income. So only 2%, for example, of non-Syrian households here in Jordan are receiving cash assistance. Um, cash assistance for years is a way that people could stave off, um, you know, falling behind on their rent. Um, and that is no longer really accessible for, for most people. Um, I will mention, um, in, in speaking of livelihoods and the ability to bring in income, um, you know, aside from lockdowns making it difficult for people to access work, if they even have it, work disappearing, um, many families, and particularly Iraqi families in our community, um, rely on regular wires of, of money um, from family members abroad. And as we know, COVID has affected everyone around the world. And so a lot of those remittances or cash, um, you know, income from, from family members outside are no longer accessible to people. Um, so that also really strains them. So what we've been doing is collateral repair project. Um, yeah, it's a very, very difficult situation. We're super worried about people. Um, we run two community centers here in the capital um, of Amman, and we're not able to have our centers open and haven't been for, for a number of months. So we've moved many of our programs online. And um, we really ramped up early on in the COVID um, crisis, our rapid response. Um, from April to September, we were able to serve an average of 856 families by giving them cash assistance or credit at grocery stores to get the food they need. But it's been very difficult for us to keep up that level of funding like many other INGOs here. And 
we've been decreasing that since September and are going down to only 165 families that we're able to help beginning in January. We really, really have increased the amount of outreach, uh, mainly by phone, that our staff and refugee volunteers do um, to our whole community to check in on people, see how they're doing, let them know that you know we're, we care about them, we're concerned, see how they're doing. Also, to you know, really think about protection, see you know, are, are they feeling safe? How are things in their family? And um, a lot of our programming really focuses on protection. Um, we work a lot. We have our online um, family violence awareness and prevention work that we do with men and boys that has moved online. We run a lot of support groups um, as well as particular support groups for parents who, like everywhere around the world, they're really struggling, um, but have a lot of programs to help people learn tools to be able to take care of themselves and deal with their stress. Um, yeah, it's, it's very, very difficult times. Um, we see that people are struggling and, you know, our volunteers, staff, and all of us are doing what we can. Um, I think I'll stop there and I'm looking forward to uh, taking part in the Q&A. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, uh, Amanda, for such an excellent presentation. Uh, We'll move on to our second panelist, who is Dr. Riscala, neither Dr. Nadine Riscala, who recently researched the needs and challenges of Syrian refugees in Lebanon. She also researched the challenges of aid workers providing services to refugees and local populations during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Riscala is a Palestinian scholar. She holds a BA in psychology and English literature from Ben-Gurion University. She has a PhD in social work from Tel Aviv University, and she is also a specialist in couple and family therapy and group facilitation. She served as uh, the volunteer coordinator at the Haifa Rape Crisis Center and the director of the Haifa Ministry of Health's mobile clinic, where she treated women, men, and LGBTQ individuals involved in prostitution. She also trained and uh, professionals and volunteers on dealing with sexual violence. She was a postdoctoral researcher at the Mac Center on Mental Health and Social Conflict at the School of Social Welfare at the University of California in Berkeley. Her research interests are fascinating. I'll, uh, I could go on for ages, but they are at the interface of trauma and its impact on physical and mental health. She had uh, authored papers, uh, peer-reviewed papers, and book chapters on many social issues, including prostitution, pornography, and trafficking of women, uh, marital adjustments uh, amongst Palestinian and Jewish married couples in Israel. These are just to name a few. In the past 10 years, she has also researched and conducted fieldwork with, with Syrian refugees, Palestinians, torture survivors, and other vulnerable populations in the Middle East region. Her most recent project is entitled Challenges of Aid Workers Serving Refugees in Lebanon Before and During COVID-19, which is extremely relevant to today's panel discussion. Welcome, uh, Dr. Nabil Riscala, and good morning to you. The platform is yours. Thank you, Maher. Thank you for this introduction. Um, I would like to talk to you about the research um, me and my students have conducted uh, during March and April 2020. 
um, in Lebanon. Um, the research is called The Challenge of, of, of Syrian Refugees and Ed Workers in Lebanon. And uh, it, its uh, perspective is we compare between the situation of both refugees and ed workers before COVID-19 and during COVID-19. Um, the Syrian conflict has taken a toll, a brutal toll, uh, on the Syrian people, and more than 6 million Syrians fled to neighboring countries, including Lebanon, which hosts the second largest uh, Syrian refugee population. The refugee influx has overburdened the already overstretched infrastructures in Lebanon. Organizations working um, uh, and providing services to Syrians struggle in maneuvering the programs and resources offered to refugees as well as finding funding for their services. So this, my students and I, uh, we wanted to study and examine the challenges of Syrian refugees and ed workers who assist them and to see if there was any difference between um, the situation before COVID-19 and during uh, COVID-19. I would also want um, to offer a perspective on what also happens to researchers who conduct studies in, in these situations. It's not only COVID-19 has affected everyone, not only refugees and ed workers, but also us, the researchers. So I want to also include that in, in, in my uh, conversation with you today. Um, in our initial phase of the study, uh, the research team approached uh, contact in the Middle East and established connection with non, uh, with on the ground non-governmental organizations, uh, which work with Syrian refugees. Um, my two students, uh, Janel Mubaraka and Lian El Kazaz, they were set to travel to Lebanon. They got funding to travel, and they wanted to see refugees and gather survey data from uh, from them. And they also wanted to conduct semi-structure interviews with staff working at NGOs that provided ads and services to Syrian refugees and to the local Lebanese communities in need. However, as a result of COVID-19, travel-related restrictions were put in effect, into effect, which prevented the implementation of the initial study design. So we needed to change uh, the whole study design uh, to adjust to the new circumstances. Therefore, we switched and immediately shifted to be completely remote and focus entirely on the semi-structure interviews with the staff of NGOs. Um, the data collection uh, took place between March and April 2020. Remote semi-structured interviews were conducted with Skype around 37%, with Zoom around uh, 36%, and WhatsApp around 26%. And uh, we conducted these interviews with, with 19 ed workers who worked in six organizations and provided services to Syrian refugees in Lebanon. These organizations were Women New for Development, sorry, Women Now for Development, Basma and Zaytuna, Relief and Development, World Vision Lebanon, Akuruna, Shield Lebanon, and Serapta. The audio recorded interviews were uh, 
both in English and in Arabic. Um, 52% were in English and 37% were in Arabic and 10% were mixed between Arabic and English. Um, of course, particip participation was voluntary and only oral, oral consent was required from participants and we didn't provide any incentives uh, to the ed workers who participated. The interviews were then transcribed, translated and analyzed by the team of the researchers and we used thematic approach of analysis within the qualitative methodology approaches. Um, the two students were uh, both undergraduate students at UC Berkeley who did not have any previous experience with conducting such a study. So also the amount of stress in, in switching the, the study design and, and interviewing people remotely, also facing themselves with COVID-19 and the new restrictions and being quarantined during the study have also added some challenges to the study. Results. I would love to share some of the demographics of the participants. So the participants were uh, ed workers, 58% were women, 42% men, 52.6% were Lebanese, and 42% were Assyrians. They worked between 30 to 70 hours per week, on average 42.9 hours per week. And their age ranged from 24 to 60, on average 33.6 years old. And the majority were married, around 47%. And um, the analysis have showed that there were two distinct chronological periods that uh, um, the ed workers uh, identified. One period is related to the challenges um, before COVID-19 and when ed workers talked about that they mainly focus on the challenges that refugees uh, uh, faced. When we talk about uh, during COVID-19 uh, okay thank you <laughs> I'm if I'm too okay thank you um So the two chronological periods were identified, challenges uh, before COVID-19, and they uh, mainly focused on refugees. Whereas during COVID-19, the challenges that ed workers articulated were related to both refugees and the ed workers themselves. Suddenly, they started talking also about themselves. It wasn't only about the refugees who faced challenges, um, which shows how, how human we are, because everyone, us, also the researchers, we were also facing similar challenges. Um, so before COVID-19, the main issues that ed workers uh, mentioned about refugees uh, challenges were that Syrian refugees' legal status in Lebanon was identified as a primary challenge to living, to their living conditions. The difficulty in obtaining residency paperwork limits their ability to secure housing, employment, and education. According to all participants, Lebanese hostility towards Syrian refugee 
refugees is more prominent in urban areas in comparison to rural areas and has escalated even after the October 2019 uprising. The ed workers were very concerned with the worsening economic situation, partic particularly after the protest, as increasing prices and the inflation of the Lebanese lira posed challenges to their ability to provide services. Now, you need to understand that during these interviews, because we were in March, April uh, 2020, it was during the eruption of COVID-19, then the, the, um, the interviews, if you read the, the sequence of the interviews, you would be very confused because ed workers um, kept comparing between the situation before COVID-19 and during COVID-19. And at times, uh, the, student, the students, both Jin and al they were like asking, are you referring to before COVID-19? Are you referring to, to the current situation? So the, the periods have been uh, confused between um, uh, the challenges before and after. So everything was a, a big mix. So during uh, COVID-19, the primary concern was that while Lebanese government orders have been put in place to limit this, the spread of the virus, too many people, especially Syrian refugees, work daily jobs. They, they needed to work every day which prevented them from uh, participating, from actually uh, practicing social distancing. And the ones who could not uh, uh, continue their jobs, they were um, sitting at home unemployed, which have also increased during COVID-19. So taking all of these components with the economic decline, refugee conditions have deteriorated and many are in dire need uh, for food, masks, hygiene kits, and other protective measures. Ed workers also articulated that they have uh, seen um, negative coping mechanisms increasing, such as aggression and depression, and they were especially concerned about domestic violence that has increased during uh, COVID-19, or if did not increase, but they it took a, a, a more aggressive uh, uh, form. And a few of them mentioned uh, a father throwing uh, his daughter, an infant daughter from the window. Um, so these uh, incidents uh, were um, talked about during these interviews in, in a lot of, of amazement that this was unusual behavior. Um, but they reflect the, 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 the the extreme uh, difficult challenges that refugees are dealing with. Um, refugees' decreased living conditions have increased the fear of the Lebanese community. The Lebanese community um, thought that because refugees could not afford the hygiene kits or uh, um, protect themselves and have protective measurements, uh, maybe they will have more of the virus, even though that studies uh, did not show uh, a difference between the local and the refugee community, still the fear um, increased within the Lebanese community and they wanted to be isolated from the refugee communities. Um, refugees who live in informal resettlement arrangements 
were not allowed to exit their resettlements, which is already highly populated. Only one member of the resettlement was allowed to exit in order to meet with a team leader of one of the organizations to receive food baskets, hygiene kits, and other necessities for the whole resettlement. So one person only went out, took what, they, what he needed for the whole uh, um, community. Uh, refugees who suffered and escaped the traumas of war faced another cycle of trauma during their displacement. So in regards to trauma, these refugees have escaped the war already and faced trauma already, but when they came to Lebanon, they faced another uh, uh, trauma and another shock of this unwelcoming uh, hospitality. Um, and the unemployment and housing issues and malnutrition and so many uh, uh, facts together. Um, and this was also experienced as traumatizing. Uh, however, with the eruption of COVID-19, these refugees suffer from a triple trauma uh, due to the strict shelter-in-place restrictions, social distancing, isolation, Lebanese governmental hostility, and the local hostility. Uh, when <clears throat> when I asked about the when we when uh, the ed workers talked about their circumstances and not the refugees during COVID nineteen, they uh, provided the following: uh, organizations shift shifted to remote programming and services. At the time of the interviews, all participants were working from home and only a few were allowed to meet with beneficiaries from the local Lebanese communities and the Syrian refugee communities, especially healthcare providers like doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and team leaders responsible for the distribution of food items and hygiene kits. And at time, if it was um, available, the cash assistance, uh, um, they would um, meet with uh, uh, refugees near the ATM in order to help them uh, in actually getting access to their cash if they didn't know how to do that. NGOs faced tremendous difficulties in reaching out to refugees and they used phone calls for their educational programs and to talk to beneficiaries and just to ask how they were and check, check on them in general. Many refugees unfortunately don't have internet connection or devices um, uh, computers uh, or uh, iPads um, for remote meetings, and many suffered from the electricity disconnectivity that is common in Lebanon. So even when they had computers or um, phones, it was uh, commonly uh, disconnected because of the electricity disruptions. Um, consequence, consequently, these ed workers uh, said that the the working hours have increased during COVID-19, even though they were at home, and many have used smoking as a negative coping mechanism. They admitted feeling stressed and finding difficulty in adjusting to, to social distancing, and these, these were um, um, articulated especially by the ones who have elderly parents who they could not visit, and the ones who had children who were at home. <clears throat> um, this unusual and complex situation placed refugees and ed workers 
in a position defined in the literature as a shared traumatic reality in which both the refugees and ed workers lived and worked under the same traumatizing conditions of the COVID-19 circumstances, and they were under quarantine. This stressful context was at times traumatizing, and I call it a shared traumatic pandemic reality. This situation was also shared by the researchers who conducted the study. Uh, they were also uh, interviewing participants during being quarantined. The conclusions and implementations that we would like to offer, I would like to offer, is that um, this study offers an updated and holistic understanding of the challenges faced by both Syrian refugees and ed workers in Lebanon, as well as researchers who investigate COVID-19 consequences in conflict zones. The political and economic situations in Lebanon have imposed an unwelcoming hospitality towards refugees. Such circumstances have become even more complex under COVID-19. More than ever, the humanitarian sector needs funding to enable the support of the most vulnerable, both in the host community and refugee population. We, all, we also recommend that mentors and supervisors at academic institutions provide their students and staff with space uh, with safe spaces to contain all the stressors conveyed during these unprecedented times in order to enable productivity, growth, and empowerment, especially when conducting an international research during a shared and traumatic pandemic reality. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Iskala, for this contribution. I'd like to remind our audiences that this is a Commonwealth Club virtual program with Dr. Naveen Riskala and Amanda Lane. I'm Maher Kalaji, today's moderator. Now it's time for the question and answer period. We have a few questions, so let us begin with that. Uh, I would like to start with a question to Amanda, actually. Uh, Naveen has already touched on the hostility towards the Syrian refugees. <clears throat> excuse me, in Lebanon. I know that uh, in Jordan, they, you know, you've had refugees initially uh, from 48, 67, from the Palestinian, from Palestine, and then the Lebanese refugees, and then the uh, Iraqi refugees, and the Syrian refugees, the Yemeni refugees, and I'm sure now there are other refugees who are arriving into the country. So it's been very welcoming as a place for them. But uh, the, the, the devastating effects of particularly the second wave of COVID uh, left some serious problems for the country in terms of the economic crisis. Uh, as you mentioned, there are day laborers there. So what, what, what yeah, I'm trying to lead to over here is, have you noticed any uh, refugee fatigue, refugee welcome fatigue in terms of uh, what, the people you've been working with in Jordan? That's a good question. Um, how to answer that? Well, it's a little difficult to answer it in many ways because we've all been kind of working from home and uh, our centers are closed and people are trying to stay at home. Um, 
what I can talk about um, briefly is, you know, that, that Jordan has a very real history of, um, of being welcoming um, to refugees, as, as you mentioned. Um, I think, you know, um, there, in, in, in a number of cases, I think as, as numbers kind of get bigger, particularly with the Syrian refugee crisis, that we have so many um, Syrian refugees here. Um, you know, looking looking at at the economic situation, the high unemployment that, that we have among Jordanians um, to begin with, that, you know, it's always been a bit of a dance. You know, the government has been um, happy or, or, or let's say welcoming to host refugees, yet um, doesn't really, you know, definitely needs help from, from international governments to be able to support them um, as well as... Um, international NGOs like ours and local community-based organizations, you know, everybody's shipping in to do what they can. Um, as for refugee fatigue, um, that's something that I think particularly um, I've witnessed in the 10 years that I've been back here in Jordan. Um, you know, it, it has been very interesting to me that, you know, in, in the number of years that I lived here um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, that, you know, Syria was, and I'm talking about Syrians in particular, that Syria was really, really seen as, you know, this great civilization that I think Jordanians in many ways really looked up to and, and um, were, felt very happy, I think, um, early on to, to be hosting Syrians. Um, as the economy, um, you know, gets battered and continuously even more battered during COVID, um, you know, that, that's something that has become difficult. Um, definitely refugee fatigue. Um, I can't really speak to increased refugee fatigue um, due to COVID. Um, I haven't heard much about that or read much about that. Um, but I can say that, you know, there's a lot of stress across the country. People are, you know, not just refugees, but Jordanians are really struggling to make ends meet. Um, you know, if, if we look at at kind of assessing vulnerability, refugees in general come out as being quite a bit more vulnerable um, than even vulnerable Jordanians, yet um, it's still difficult um, all around. So I'll stop there. I hope that was, that was a, a decent, helpful enough answer. It, it is, thank you so much. The, 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 the follow-up to that is uh, clearly you have some interaction with the government over there, hopefully, and uh, has there been any uh, negative or positive response to your uh, to your uh, uh, work over there in terms, of, particularly during the COVID uh, pandemic? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, as I mentioned, the, you know, the government um, struggles to be able to um, provide support um, for Jordanians who are in need. Um, you know the. Again, um, the economy is has not been great, and um, and it's difficult. Um, we in in when COVID first um, landed in Jordan, there was a very very serious lockdown to the extent that INGOs like Collateral Repair Project and others, you know, the Oxfam's, the Cares, the Mercy Corps, we couldn't, um, you know, we couldn't get, we couldn't drive, we we weren't allowed to be in cars, we weren't allowed to leave the neighborhoods. Um, it was really, really difficult for about 
10 days early on. Um, and this happened quite quickly. We knew of, you know, we were terrified. We knew of so many families that we, we had no idea how they were going to eat um, because the banks were closed. We didn't know how to help them. Um, we were very lucky in a way because we literally had staff walking to grocery stores when they opened in neighborhoods where people could walk to grocery stores and get the food they needed. And we were able to just say, hey guys, once the banks open, we're going to give you credit to pay for this list of families. And so families were able to walk to the grocery stores. And, and you know, the Jordanian, the Jordanian government began an effort to, to raise funds to help people in need, um, you know, thousands and thousands of Jordanian families as well needed help. Um, so, you know, we work very closely with the Ministry of Social Development and, you know, they expressed to us very early on, they recognized that we were able to move very quickly. Um, and we're very, very grateful for the role that organizations like, small organizations like, like us who are able to be really nimble, but also larger international NGOs that can, can you know, kind of, raise an appeal and, and get money to help refugees um, because the Jordanian government certainly is, isn't unable to do it all alone and is very, very grateful for, for you know, all of that assistance that, you know, anyone is able to offer. There's a follow-up question uh, to you, Amanda, before I ask sure. something to uh, Naveen. Uh, there was a uh, question online, which is, uh, they're asking about they're asking you to expand a bit on the programs that uh, the CRP offers. And is there, oh, sure. a way, is there a, no, the question is, is there a way also for people who are online in the USA to get involved online? How can they, what, because they can't travel over there. How can they assist uh, with the refugees? Yeah. I mean, I'm really working in, uh, in, in Jordan there, but clearly uh, uh, Naveen also has expertise in Lebanon. How do you, uh, is there a way they can assist you? Can you suggest methods, ways of, of doing that? Sure, I can speak. Um, I mean, I we run lots and lots of programs. Um, I would characterize the, the programs that we run as being ways for, they might be learning, uh, a place to learn, activities to learn skills, um, such as English classes um, or computer classes, um, you know, we have a lot of kind of learning and vocational training. We also have a lot of opportunities for people to kind of come together and build community. Um, and then opportunities and, and courses and classes where people can heal from trauma. You know, we do a lot of kind of alternative um, approaches to what we call uh, community-based psychosocial support. We have a lot of yoga classes. We teach people how to do relaxation techniques and meditate. Um, I've mentioned support groups. Um, probably the easiest low-level um, uh, way that, that people can help and get involved in programming for, with us is so many people are stuck at home. They are. They love learning English, and um, we have a lot of people who just are paired with somebody to to give English conversation practice. Um, it's often a little difficult um, with the with the difficult or the difference in time, uh, especially for folks in in the San Francisco West Coast area. But but yeah, we we do that a lot, and um, are very grateful for for people who want to connect. Um, and I will say that that also is a piece of the work that we do. We, our organization started in 2006 um, because, you know, it's an American organization and we're very, you know, we, we felt that 
connecting with Iraqis at the time who were the main refugee population in Jordan was really important um, as a means of reconciliation. So that piece of getting people together and interacting is really important for us. Sorry, I hope I didn't That's talk okay. too long. Thank you. Naveen, can I ask you a question? If you know from your contacts uh, in Lebanon, uh, has the big explosion in Beirut, has it affected the Syrian refugees in any way uh, and the reaction, the general reaction to the COVID pandemic in general? The explosion, you said? Yes, the big explosion at the port. Have you got contacts there who may have given you information on the ground about what's, what's, what's happened with the refugees there or the, the reaction towards it? Because the hospitals are overwhelmed as well over there. So do you have any any information about this? Can, if you can give me a quick answer for that, please. Yes. Um, the, the study was conducted in March and April, but the explosion was afterwards. And of course, we cont I contact the people who were interviewed, uh, the leaders of uh, organizations and CEOs, just to make sure if they are okay. And many of them were impacted by the explosion. Many of them were uh, physically injured and uh, rushed to the hospital or lost a car which was exploded and etc. etc. And they also um, uh, explained that the mental health of people who uh, experienced the shelling and bombing in Syria now are not only they have uh, displacement challenges and the pandemic to deal with, they have also experienced the bombing that was a, a, a very, very bad recollection of uh, 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 the war. Uh, bombings um, in their past. So the, this event was very, very traumatizing for the refugee uh, population in Lebanon. And uh, of course, anxiety and depression increased during that. And also the dire economic need that people just lost again their possessions and their prop, like the things, the little things that they owned, a few mattresses, a few clothes that they could uh, put their hands on. Thank you, thank you, I mean, thank you for, thank you for uh, a very, very good answer there. I mean, I know we have focused on your work with the refugees in uh, Syria and, sorry, in Lebanon and in Jordan, but, you know, let us not forget that, you know, there are refugees who are in displacement camps in their own countries. And I was reading a report by the Norwegian Refugee Council about uh, nearly 100,000 people without shelter in Iraq. They've been moved... They've been asked to close uh, these uh, displacement camps. And winter is harsh over there. So we have these people who are displaced in their own countries, and they are suffering as much as everybody else. We have not mentioned refugees in other countries. We have uh, the war in Ethiopia now. We have the refugees in South Africa, the Rohingya in Bangladesh. So there, there are so many of these which are really impacted by uh, COVID and the economic impacts of COVID. One thing which I want to touch on before we uh, come to, to towards the end, which is, uh, you know, that this 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 pandemic has been devastating. We have 68 up to today, 68.4 million people who have been infected, uh, 1.56 million deaths. Uh, the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, and every country is trying to get there, is the vaccination vaccination and medication. But at the moment, we're all rushing towards the vaccination. And I don't know if you're aware of this, this organization called COVAX, which is formed by the World Health Organization, the European Union, etc., and so many countries, to ensure equitable distribution of vaccines. What worried me 
mostly in all of this is that there's something called vaccine nationalism. All the countries in the world have joined COVAX except Russia and the United States of America, plus uh, Kazakhstan, Belarus, and uh, some of the small islands in the Pacific. I mean, that is really worrying because the aim of COVAX is to, to ensure that even the refugees get the treatment like everybody else gets that. Um, fortunately, I think you're in countries where that will happen, but whether uh, uh, the, the goodwill extends from the major powers that we're not sure about that yet. So I, you know, I, uh, that's just the point I wanted to raise at the end because I think it's very important that we are aware of these issues that are facing the refugees uh, throughout the world here. Meher, um, I, I'd like to just, just say one thing. And I, I think, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, when we, when uh, I remember when I was, before I moved back to Jordan, I remember, you know, we, we talk a lot about refugees. We talk about these big numbers of people who are struggling. We know that around the world, so many people are struggling, you know, in our, you know, in the United States and, you know, wherever we are, there are people who are struggling. But I think it's, you know, really important, um, you know, what I've learned living here in Jordan and working closely with refugees is that, you know, yeah, there are huge numbers of people, um, but they're just like you and me. I mean, you know, we all have the same, we all care about our families. We all want to be able to take care of our children. Like you said, some of them, you know, literally don't even have a, a roof over their head or, or a, a, a true place to, to really live. And I think that, you know, it's always important for us to like put ourselves, you know, to think that, you know, these are people, honestly, who are who are just like you and me. They're terrified of their family getting COVID and not being able to to help them or, or save them or things like that. So I don't know. I just think that that's so important for us to to really understand that you know they're mothers and fathers and people who just want to take care of their families. Thank you both so much for raising awareness on some really uh, gut wrenching issues. I should say they really are. Uh, I mean, I wanted to talk to you about uh, trauma, but I don't think we have time for that. So I'd like to thank our distinguished panelists. I want to I say a sentence, Maher, just before we end. In such inhuman circumstances, to combat trauma, the best is to act in a human manner and to contribute as humans and to, to even, in a, if you can't hug the other person, send them a gift for the holidays, send a contribution to any organization you like. I'm, I'm, I'm very objective about that. I don't, I, don't, I don't care which organization, but if you want to do something, contribute, give, send uh, something, say a good word, uh, advocate in your position, whatever you can do to promote humanity in such inhuman circumstances. Thank you so much for the very long sentence. So... <laughs> Thanks to our distinguished panelists, Dr. Naveen Rizkella, Research Associate at the Center for Middle East Studies at UC Berkeley, and Amanda Lane, Executive Director of the Collateral Repair Project for their contribution to today's program, The Impact of COVID-19 on Refugees. And I would like to thank the technical staff at the Commonwealth Club for a fantastic program, the way they've steered it and guided us. You've done an excellent job. Thank you so much. And now the meeting of this of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 117 years of enlightened discussion is adjourned. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.